ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 and $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a dramatic increase in psychotherapeutic models, methods, and, op- and options for Russians to turn to, to weather the chaos and adapt to the new social economic order. Public and private psychotherapeutic seminars, trainings, retreats, advanced models of the self fit for neoliberalism, entrepreneurship, self-reliance, and self-improvement. Why did so many Russians participate in psychotherapy, and how did these trainings and seminars posit a new neoliberal subjectivity that configured class and gender to meet the challenges of capitalism and democracy? I turn to Thomas Matza for some insight. Thomas Matza is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Pittsburgh, where he specializes in medical and psychological anthropology, mental health, political economy, and global health. He's the author of Shock Therapy, Psychology, Precarity, and Well-Being in Post-Socialist Russia, published by Duke University Press. Here's Thomas Matza. So you just published this, this really interesting book, Shock Therapy, Psychology, Precarity, and Well-Being in Post-Socialist Russia. And it's a really fascinating topic of looking at how the the kind of explosion or development of psychotherapy after 1991 fits into the transition or how people dealt with the collapse of communism and the, and the new system that was emerging in the 1990s and into 2000s. So I just want to ask how you came to this topic about post-Soviet psychotherapy and also briefly define what psychotherapy is. Yeah, so how did I come to the topic? Um, I would say uh, I've always been really interested in um, the relationship between uh, what we could call subjectivity, um, which is, you know, in shorthand, kind of the way that we understand who we are or what we are and how that understanding is shaped by forces, you know, larger than ourselves. So I'm interested in, in the relationship between subjectivity and, and political change, and political transformation. Um, you know, what happens when you have a shift from uh, Soviet socialism to um, market capitalism or Putinist capitalism, and how, is, how are those changes registered um, in, at the level of subjectivity? Um, so Russia always, when I was in graduate school, always struck me as a really interesting place to to explore that question but the the issue always was how the heck do you do that um, where do you look where do you study and uh, at some point a, a graduate student colleague of mine who i think you've also interviewed natalia rudakova uh, who wrote a wonderful book about soviet journalism told me about um, some of her friends who were um, taking all of these uh, psychology seminars and trainings and um, either to become psychologists or to do their own forms of self-work so I started to kind of look at this uh, trend and really got kind of sucked into it. First thing what was really fascinating was that the, the psychotherapy and psychology fields in Soviet Russia had a really kind of a parallel and interesting history in relation to the development of, of psychodynamic psychotherapy in the U.S. Um, in, in the Russian case, it had been shaped by Soviet Marxism and the pragmatics of building um, a socialist society. Um, and then I also learned that starting in the 80s and, and then especially in the 90s, there was this kind of reformulation or renaissance um, of interest in, in all kinds of 
new psychotherapeutic modalities. So it seemed that the phenomena kind of fit the, the theoretical interests that I had in, in subjectivity and, um, and political change. And, and so what is psychotherapy? Such a tricky question. Uh, <laughs> I spent many, uh, many moons um, on, the, on that one. Um, so psycho, as I learned, the, 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 I mean, a good place to start is with the term for a psychotherapist, a psychotherapeut. Um, in, in Russian, it has a, a kind of a different meaning uh, in usage. Usually it's, it's preceded by the word vrach or doctor. And, uh, and so the, the history of, of psychotherapy in the Soviet period was very much rooted with medical psychiatry and the forms of therapy that emerged in and through that were primarily practiced in clinical settings uh, with people who were, with patients who were thought to have some kind of um, uh, pathology. But um, along with this post-Soviet Renaissance, the term started to get uh, appropriated by people who had just had, who hadn't had medical training and who were more self-styled psychologists um, and interested in self-help. So I guess I would say post-Soviet psychotherapy is uh, tied to this tension between two different forms, two different understandings of what a psycho, what kind of training a psychotherapist ought to have. Should they have a medical training and work clinically or is this uh, more of a, of a talk-based, non-biomedical uh, form? In, in some ways, it's both, and there's a tension there. So in terms of the, I mean, you know, I think most people in the United States and in Europe are familiar with the talk form of psychotherapy, right? You have a therapist, you go in and you have this, you know, dialogue to deal with whatever issues you have, and there's various... Uh, theories about and methods of doing that but what is a what is a non-talk psychotherapy well it still would be talk based um but uh i would say that the so two, two examples that i that i encountered and these are in um uh, a book really really interesting book by uh, wolf lauterbach um i can't remember the title at the moment um but uh he did some, he was a, uh, I think he was Eastern German, and he did some research uh, in the Bechterev Institute in Leningrad in the 70s. And he talks about two forms of, of psychotherapy. One was called rational psychotherapy, which um, is a sort of way of explaining to the patient that the, re the underlying reason for whatever um, problem they're having, personal problem, is a, is a re result of wrong thinking. So this is talk-based, but it's more behaviorist, I think, and it's more premised on um, this idea of right and wrong, which I think is a bit anathema to uh, a Western psychodynamic approach. The other form that Lauterbach talks about is hypnosis. Um, and, uh, and so that, uh, and apparently they put these little devices under pillows of patients and there would be this sort of rolling tape um, which would which would run while the person was hypnotized to sort of correct, um, you know, that sort of wrong thinking. But I think correction is maybe the fundamental difference rather than talk or non-talk. So it was, it's, it's correction, say, versus self-realization. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you start your book with the, a really interesting opening, the first line of, of, of your introduction, and that is the term post-Soviet invokes death and rebirth. It marks a threshold and a kind of jump from one system to an, into another and from one life into another. And I, I thought we have you talk about how this notion of a threshold or a jump relates to your examination of Russian psychotherapy in, in after the collapse of communism. Well, uh, first of all, I'm, the, the other thing I uh, would, would just add to that is that that I'm sort of, I was really struck by this example of, of so-called extreme psychotherapy that I read about. I actually didn't witness it or participate in it. I'm not sure I could have, but it was, the, the idea was um, that you bury, the, the, the client is buried alive. And, uh, and sort of in this communing with, with death and the grave uh, 
as the trainer put it, a, a kind of new realization of, emerges. But the, the jump that I'm referring to um, is precisely this jump into, <laughs> into the unknown, into, you know, um, the sort of fearful, you know, dark grave, I guess you might say. So I was, uh, I think the term post-Soviet definitely because of that prefix post sort of implies uh, a jump of a sort. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a temporal rupture. And I guess I'd start by saying that there's a, always a risk with using that, that term of overplaying the concept of rupture in, in Russia. Uh, as if, you know, like after Gorbachev resigned as general secretary, general party secretary, the lights were off and everything was different. Um, so lots of people, I'm sure you've met people, uh, in Russia who say similar things that they, they have a different understanding of post-Soviet. Um, sometimes they periodize it in the eighties rather than, uh, than in the, the 1990s. Um, and, uh, and of course there's all kinds of continuities that, uh, that one can see that connect, uh, the Soviet everyday to the post-Soviet everyday. So, so that's just a kind of quick, quick qualifier. But, you know, people also told me a lot about a, a perception of radical changes that they felt in their lives um, in relation to, say, um, the central, increasingly central role that money was playing in mediating social relationships and social cultural values, having to suddenly enter a labor market in which uh, you have to imagine yourself differently as a laborer, as having a kind of career trajectory and it, sort of discourses of professionalization and success. So those were some of the things that people cited as as being tied to this rupture. And then, you know, other anthropologists like Jennifer Patico, I don't know if you've, you've read her stuff about Russian teachers and the sort of sense of disorientation they had when suddenly they were shifted from these sort of moral standard bearer intelligentsia types to, you know, underpaid uh, working class folk who, who were basically seen as, as being devalued. So, so yes, there, there was, there is a threshold moment, even if um, it's not as, as starkly drawn. Um, and I guess the threshold that I'm invoking has to do with that feeling of disorientation um, and how it ties in with uh, with a, a broader shift in subjectivity. You're no longer a socialist, you're a capitalist, or you, and you have to think about parenting and children and health and well-being in, in new ways. In a, in a way, it, 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 you know, from the way you describe some of your interlocutors and the things they tell you about this, this moment and this shift, you, what comes across is this idea of, you know, a, a kind of a, a moral, um, how should I put it? Like, uh, there, there's a moral disorientation, right? Because the values that were prominent and hegemonic before no longer or apply to the new situation or less and less applying, right? You, a different sense of self and self-worth and, and, you know, the, the, the demands of the, the, a Soviet citizen in terms of their measurement of self-worth uh, and how they fit in that society uh, radically changed after the collapse of the Soviet system. And here, I mean, just to your example of teachers, I could imagine, you know, you have a lot of people being declassed as a result. And, and I would imagine that also plays quite heavily in their, their own psychic sense of self-worth. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, th these are crude crude terms, but I think you, you know, they're, they're effective and, and, and have explanatory power. Um, and, you know, the shift that you could say is in terms of selfhood or subjectivity is, is a kind of ideal type of a builder of socialism, uh, a more socio socially oriented kind of personhood in which, in which achievement or accomplishment is, is in some ways inscribed within uh, those kinds of values to one in which the social, I think, kind of uh, drops out of view or, or is transformed. It's much more, um, the discourse of success becomes much more individualized and measured um, in monetary terms. And I think that the whole discourse of, of New Russians, the kind of pejorative term New Russians, is, is a reflection of discomfort uh, with, with those transformations. 
Well, and, and that that fits quite nicely into um, your, your book is adding to, but also pushing back against to looking at this issue of neoliberalism in the Russian context. So how should we understand neoliberalism and its connection to psychotherapy in Russia? Well, a lot of ink has been spilled on the term neoliberal in anthropology. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I suppose I've added some more um, to that. Um, you know, I, it's interesting that I think in the, in the 90s, the case was easily made that the term neoliberalism was, was appropriate as a descriptor of political transformations in Russia. And, you know, you can point to people like uh, uh, Yegor Gaidar and his sort of association with Harvard and Jeffrey Sachs and as a sort of, um, I, you know, idea man behind privatization under, under Yeltsin as being uh, one um, uh, important driver of those uh, changes. But um, in, I think in the Putin years, um, the term neoliberal starts to require more qualification. So um, all this sort of renationalization of strategic industries, for instance, seems to go against uh, a broad trend in, uh, in neoliberal thought that you take, on the contrary, you take strategic industries and you, and you denationalize them, you privatize them. So, um, so I'm happy to leave the discussion of is Russia neoliberal or not to, to people who are, who are studying, you know, political economy. But in my study, at least, um, I was more focused on the kind of micro technologies, I guess you might say, that um, lots of sociologists, particularly people really um, drawing on Foucault's work, had, had, had discussed. So the people like Nicholas Rose, um, Graham Birchall, Wendy Brown, Barbara Cruikshank, what they talk about is that accompanying uh, neoliberal reforms has, is, this, um, is this emphasis on a new kind of model of subjectivity which prioritizes uh, self-responsibility. Um, there's the famous phrase that we must become entrepreneurs of the self. We're, we are no longer citizens, but we are consumer subjects um, who, are, who, who have to look after ourselves. And, and what, I, what I saw in this post-Soviet psychology boom uh, mirrored a lot of those uh, kinds of discourses uh, that, that scholars who had talked about the U.S. and Western Europe described. So self-esteem or sama atsenka, um, self-management, sama upravlenie, self-knowledge, sama paznania. Um, these were, uh, particularly in commercial contexts, really um, often used and discussed and promoted kinds of aims and ends of, of self-work. So the discourses were there. Whether Russia is neoliberal or not in 2005, you know, the discourses were definitely there and they were guiding um, the, the kinds of self-work that I was, I was tracking. On, on the surface, you have this proliferation of, of psychotherapy in Russia that speaks to, to this need and, and, and really this, the language you just, the types of terms you, you noted that were floating around in the mid-2000s about, you know, you know self-worth and, and, and uh, being a self-reliant individual person, uh, being an entrepreneur. And, and this is really speaks to this need to create, as you said, a, a kind of neoliberal subjectivity or a neoliberal subject, a movement from, say, um, homo sovieticus to, say, a homo economicus or something like this, right? But, but you're also, I think, you, you know, alongside that, you're, you're saying something a bit more, and that is so the psychotherapy functions, you know, also as a means of dealing with a kind of trauma. And here it goes back to this idea that we talked about a few minutes ago of, of rupture, um, of having to overcome the old and, and having to come to terms with the new. Um, what, do you, what do you think of this idea of this psychotherapy having this this double um, role of of both dealing with the trauma of the rupture of and of overcoming past and also coming to terms with the present or future yeah th i mean this is th it's a great question i and thank you for asking because it is such an important 
um, part of, of, uh, of the book. Um, I think that, you know, so on the surface, uh, as I was just saying, um, it, there was a, a really um, obvious um, kind of connection between certain discourses that scholars have associated with neoliberalization and the psych forms of psychotherapy and psychological self-work that I was tracking um, ethnographically. It's there. But definitely, um, when I got into the field, things looked different, as, as they should, right? They were more messy, they were more human. Um, and, you know, in this way, I really owe a huge uh, debt of gratitude to the to the psychologists, psychotherapists, and psychiatrists who spent time with me and and invited me into not just to interview but to participate in in their personal growth seminars. Um, and what I learned from them was was that the the reinvention of of all things psy psy was was not just reducible to some kind of late capitalist technique, you know, of the self. Um, and they had other fish to fry, I guess you might say. They were concerned with, with a range of other things which, that, were that were historically meaningful. And this is where your point about the old comes in. For instance, um, they, were t they were really focused on humanizing institutions. So taking, taking uh, formerly Soviet institutions, whether schools or uh, other branches of the Ministry of Education or, or even clinics, and humanizing them. Um, and for them, I think that meant intervening in um, the, the particular way in which doctor-patient relationships were structured, rather than hierarchical, more, more horizontal um, and more, um, I guess, you know, empathetic. They also were really interested in, in depathologizing mental suffering. One of the func features or one of the outcomes of the Soviet uh, psych psychology and psychiatry was that mental suffering, and you know, even still today, when people use the uh, Russians will use the term psych, and they kind of tap their, uh, you know, the their their head, like to suggest there's something wrong with you, right? So this was another thing that um, that they were uh, trying to push. So I think the bottom line then is that while these are there are overlaps or resonances with neoliberal discourses. Um, a lot of the work that um, that these practitioners were doing also had to do with uh, engaging with a number of, of what, from their point of view, problematic forms of mental health services and changing changing those. Um, I guess the, the the point about trauma—that's the last thing you you mentioned. Um, I guess yeah, you could use it maybe metaphorically. Um, yeah, and, and that's, I guess, how, how I hear you using it. And I, and I think definitely some people were drawn to, uh, to become uh, psychologists because of a, of a felt sense of being oppressed somehow or other in the late Soviet period. There's a woman named Irina, for instance, who talks about this experience of being a black sheep in school and, and, and really feeling uh, like she had you know, no opportunity really for self-expression. And she goes to her first psychological training um, in the 1991s. And it is, it is like a kind of quasi, in her terms, quasi-religious experience. She went wild for it, she says. She kind of, it's almost like addictive. So I took the, I tried to take those stories really seriously. Um, and they pushed against the, the analytic framework of, of, you know, neoliberal subjectivization, um, I think, in really interesting and important ways. And what about people who seek this type of uh, participation in this therapy, the people who go to these trainings and these seminars and these retreats? Did you get a sense of what they were looking for in, in participating in these new kind of therapeutic forms? kind of a you know a wide range so first of all who are they it depends on where are they um so uh, i did um i'd worked in two kind of contexts one was a commercial context sometimes they call it komerciski sometimes they call it or non-governmental it kind of switches around 
Um, and that's basically paid services. Um, and as you might expect, um, there's a certain segment of the Russian population that has the kinds of disposable income on hand to invest in those kinds of things. So they tended to be from the sort of uh, professional class and, and either their themselves or their children. And what they were working for, what, what I can comment on most, I guess, clearly is, is in relation to services for children, um, where I did a, 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 a fair amount of field work. Um, what they were interested in was um, thinking of psychologists as people who could um, give their kids the tools to take over the business or to um, become successful or, you know, they were sort of almost like if you put your kid in like a computer class, you know, um, uh, something like that, a kind of capacitation. Um, for adults themselves um, in, in the commercial sector, I heard complaints actually from psychologists saying that all you know, people want to learn how to do is to how to manipulate, you know, sort of draw on psychological expertise to learn how to push somebody's buttons, you know, to manipulate them, to become a kind of mastermind. Is this to use in like the business world? In the business world, although one um, woman practitioner uh, who was doing sort of courses in women's sexuality complained that a lot of her female clients were coming to, they wanted to learn how to control their husbands. <laughs> and this was much, a much lower bar than she was, you know, <laughs> aiming at. Um, but, um, you know, I guess the third kind of area would be people who, uh, and they often ended up becoming psychologists themselves. They were interested in a form of, of authentic self-expression or self-realization. And, and those are, I think, um, familiar forms of um, kind of ethical practices of self, if you want to use that, uh, that phrase, um, which I think you find in, in self-help um, in the U.S. and other contexts, too. How about, you know, I was struck by, because when I think of psychotherapy, um, I think of a very intimate one-on-one -on -one patient doctor relationship, right? This is the first thing. Um, and, but a lot of what you're looking at is actually in a group setting. And it's also in a different in institutional setting. I mean, on the one hand, you have these, uh, you know, they could be in, in state institutions and in, in institutes, but also you have a whole market economy about the selling of these services. But, uh, but putting that aside for now, I'm mostly interested in the means of delivery. The fact that they are doing these, as they're called, trainings you know, seminars, retreats. To me, this speaks more toward, you know, to a comparison of a phenomenon in America of the motivational speaker. Uh, does it, so what is the line between this kind of motivational speaker, leadership, uh, self-reliance discourse that you may find, say, in the United States, you know, like this guy, uh, you know, Tony Robbins type stuff, right? Uh, how does that compare to what is going on in, in Russia in terms of these forms of delivery? Well, it's funny you mentioned Tony Robbins. My, my very first, uh, I was a kind of a journalist-ish uh, before I went to graduate school. And one of the first feature articles I, I was sort of commissioned to write was, uh, you know, I went to a Tony Robbins seminar in Chicago and uh, had this uh, kind of went there and participated and then went and like somehow found my way backstage and had this very tense, you know, three minute exchange with him um, where I sort of called him a snake oil salesman. He didn't like that very much. Um, I, I said, I said, others have said, and he was like, you know, I never hear that directly from, uh, from the person talking to me, which I thought was a fair point. Anyway. Um, so, uh, there are similarities, um, but I, you know, there are definitely similarities. The the kind of linkage between uh, self realization, as he, as Robbins would call it, personal power, and and success. Um, in the commercial context, uh, that was a very robust link for sure. 
Um, and I saw that, I came to see that as actually an advertising strategy more than anything by these commercial organizations trying to play to what they perceived their uh, consumer audience was interested in. And, and in fact, based on their ability to attract clients, that would seem to be have been borne out. Um, but there were some differences. I mean, one is scale. So Robbins is huge, you know, and, uh, and, and these were... Um, groups of between sort of as as few as four and maybe up to like 10 people in a room sitting with one psychologist um, or psychotherapist. Um, it was, I would say, these, these group settings were much more uh, psychologically inscribed uh, at that time. And so, I mean, I felt that Robbins, when I learned more about him, the psychological knowledge had been synthesized and transformed into kind of a commercial neologisms, like you know his sort of branded. This was this was really placing psychological techniques much more front and center. And so, you know, in the kids' uh, camp that I, I spent some time in, for instance, we uh, we were asked to draw a map of our internal emotional worlds, right? And so, you. It, when you're confronted with that blank sheet of paper, it's really interesting. You kind of have to start to articulate and think about yourself in, in um, precisely psychological terms because of the way they've posed the question. So, you know, how, would, how do you spatialize um, your emotional world and which things are occupy the center and what kinds of affects are at the margins and are there tensions? So those were things experiences or activities that were in a lot of these um, settings that that felt um, different from the kind of management consulting modes that I that I know a little bit about in the US um, a lot of role-playing too um, I was in a parenting seminar where uh, we I talk about this in the book a little bit where each person has to be a bad child and then the parent the other person is the parent trying to get the bad child to do something and you kind of go through this role playing it's very frustrating to be on the parent end let me tell you and and you, <laughs> after that you have to then analyze right so so those forms of of analysis of of affective experience were um i think really central to um to this particular moment at least of of psychological self-help and psychotherapy. Last thing I wanted to say just about one-on-one, -on -one, because you mentioned that, is um, I, there are anthropologists who don the white coat, they shadow the, psych, the psychiatrist. It's usually, interestingly, it's usually in clinical settings where patients have different kinds of uh, rights, almost, you could say. Um, and uh, I did not do that kind of research. I kind of wasn't comfortable with the idea of sitting in on a one-on-one. -on -one -on -one. I was more comfortable as a group participant. Um, but one way that I tried to kind of methodologically capture a little bit of that is was through this kind of uh, analysis of the, the radio program on Echa Moskvi, where you where you hear just the host, you and you know the rest of Russia that's listening, hear the host and one person talking yeah we'll get to that in a bit how did they receive you you know this guy who shows up from america and you approach these psychotherapists and you're like hey i'm here and i want to study what you do and your participants how did they accept you uh miraculously they did um you know i i you know again going back to this sort of debt of gratitude that that a stranger could show up and want to poke around in in their business, um, and then that they would uh, allow that. I, I I still sometimes think like, how did that happen? Um, in some cases, I think I was seen as a possible asset or resource. Um, for instance, in the case of the camps um, and the organization that was running the camps, they liked the idea that a native English speaker would be floating around and that they could kind of promote that to these these families as, as you know, another plus. Um, another practitioner I came to know kind of 
would later on ask me to help with the translation um, and was, was interested in knowing as much as possible about the U.S. market because he wanted to know if he could kind of break in. And then in public services, um, which is to say state-run or municipal-run services, um, I actually don't know why they let me in. Uh, I don't know. If, maybe they just took pity on me, you know, this kind of Prince Mushkin guy, like, fumbling around, um, asking really obvious questions. But, but they did. Um, and, uh, and in that case, I tried to return the favor at the end by um, sharing my observations of of their day-to-day -day practices, um, some of which were, um, which I was afraid to share with them actually, because they were a little bit critical, but they were very um, re receptive. So it's always a negotiation in anthropology. It's about rapport and this sort of very hard thing to put your finger on. Yeah, this is what I always tend to ask anthropologists this, because, you know, as someone who's trained as a historian, you know, we only deal with dead people. Like we don't have to actually talk to somebody that's beyond, say, a librarian or archivist, you know, unless you, you're one of those few who do interviews. Um, so I'm always curious, like, how do you, as someone who can, uh, as, a, as a scholar who parachutes in to a, into an environment, you know, how do the people that are, you know, where you land accepting you as an outsider and how they integrate you or don't integrate you. So I'm always curious. It is, a, it is a kind of a social art, and I think it carries with it then certain ethical obligations that, yeah. that we have to, to the people that, that allow us to, to know them and their work. Especially in a, in, a, in a situation, too, of any kind of psychological uh, help or therapy, you know, there's lots of privacy issues as well. Um, and, and I would imagine, I would imagine that's also something that has to be negotiated constantly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Con confidentiality. Uh, in, and in some ways, I think that this study might've been much harder to do, um, in the U S because precisely because the, uh, the legal regime around confidentiality is so much more robustly defined at this point. You know, there was confidentialness, of course, um, and people were very uh, aware of it. But I think there was also a, a kind of openness and curiosity in having me around that that um, might have, might not have been the case in other places. Now, one of the, one of the things you you point out, uh, one of the themes of the book, and you talk about this in terms of the, the seminars that deal with child rearing. Um, but also the the other ones of of kind of trainings of of self realization or in you know improving one's business techniques and negotiation techniques is that it's producing but also reproducing class and gender difference. So talk about how this psychotherapy seminars and trainings and methods re kind of play with gender and class difference and the hierarchies in Russia? So I think I would say it's um, firstly a, a structural thing, um, meaning that there's a, there's a connection or a relationship that emerges between um, already existing emergent uh, socioeconomic differences, um, you know, between the sort of the new elite and uh, people who are getting left behind, particularly in rural areas, but also in, in urban settings. Um, so there's that uh, structural thing that intersects with the kinds and qualities of services that become available to each of those respective groups of people. So I've talked um, so far, I think, more about the commercial and non-governmental sphere, which which I said is this place where where the elite sort of pay for services and are in turn um, offered a kind of pedagogy of self-realization and, and potential children, especially, is what I studied. The, the contrasting case where I spent time um, sitting in these uh, staff meetings um, in, a, in a municipal uh, psychological services center where they were the population, client population they were dealing with there were, was, was quite different. These were kids coming from, as I learned, very often challenging um, family kind of contexts. There was 
um, talk about computer addiction, but also some domestic abuse or missing a missing parent, um, or just just not having a lot of resources. And um, and it was really interesting to me that the the language of of potential and and emotional actualization that was so predominant in the in the commercial zone was was really not present there. Um, this was um, much more about prophylaxis, sort of you're either anticipating disaster, uh, you're anticipating antisocial behavior, and trying to find ways to push against that, or 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 again this notion of correction. Um, so if you're if that's the message you're getting as a client, you're you're being given you're being figured in a in a very different way, in a way that I think we could talk about in class terms um and it's it's a way in which class becomes you know potentially anyway more more deeply embedded um in the self gender um tricky let me, yeah, let yeah, me just yeah, say yeah, something sorry. really quick yeah. in the sense of yeah. you know it, it speaks to an already say existing tradition in the soviet period of of you know and also in in the late imperial period and that is you know of vospatania or or it, there's a civilizing mission that is in in these methods to a certain a, a, to a certain class right it's about bringing them out of or as you say prophylactic against them falling into various you know um either marginal social groups or 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 deviant behavior definitely that and and you could also say that the vospitania in the sense of civilizing was was also operative although in a different way in the in the commercial side of things um the practitioners there were were talk kind of talked about i mean this could have just been a justification but i i took it seriously that they talked about that they were trying to uh, essentially civilize the new elite with these kinds of values of of empathy um in the in the in the case of the pu public services there was a little bit more of um of a resonance with some of the scientifically articulated but almost mechanistic views of of a person a child and what they what the relationship to the specialist to the child ought to be more hierarchical more premised on uh, a particular ending in mind you know there's a proper way to be and so what about gender so unlike what i talk about class which i saw as a very bifurcated um, gender, uh, I found, was was operating in ways that were similar across these two uh, domains, private and public. Um, whether the practitioner was a fee-for-service person or, or a municipal worker, they both were operating with, um, I think this is pretty true in Russia in general, with a fairly traditional or conservative map of gender roles. And the in the public services, I would often hear that you know that's not what boys do, or that's you know, or boys <laughs> who are non-heteronormative are therefore potentially abnormal or even pathological. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and similarly in the in the commercial sector, um, the ways in which girls and boys were treated in those settings was was also very very gendered. The girls were chastised for, you know, tittering in the corner and, and being a passive audience. And the boys mm -hmm. were the sort of framed as the active sort of troublemakers. Right. Um, what I thought was interesting was that the, the rolling, the, the, bifur the binary roles models still seem to be in place, but, but um, psychological work was premised on a at least ostensibly on a gender blind kind of model, right? Anyone can be successful <laughs> or anyone can be damaged uh, on the flip side. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the possibilities for success um, in particular were, were still extremely gendered. So it seemed gender blind, but I think it was actually androcentric, meaning you know, it's, there's a presumed male subject um, underneath. Now, the, the psychotherapy uh, in your analysis of it moves into the political realm, but in a really interesting way. Um, you talk about it as providing or focusing on a kind of 
micro politics of liberalism. Um, and I, I found this this really interesting uh, term you borrow from uh, Julia Paley, uh, marketing democracy, a democracy infused and shaped by neoliberalism and promoted as such, but not necessarily democracy as a political form or an institutional form. Um, talk about this the the political dimensions of some of these psychotherapy uh, practices and, and the create and and the relationship to creating a political subject. There was one guy, um, one psychologist, um, who, who I call uh, in the book Alexander, um, who was working with with children, and he had maybe the most kind of crisp formulation of this micropolitics of of uh, liberal democratic thought that I, that I encountered, he said um, that he was trying to promote through this work with children a kind of uh, democracy with a small d. And I took him to mean, and he, he then, then did explain, I took him to mean that, that this was not a kind of ideological formation that sort of, you know, that we hear in the sort of George W. Bush sort of democracy building. Um, not It was not an ideological formation. It was um, something that you would know or strive towards that involved particular kinds of, of practices, self-practices, but also ways of, of relating to government institutions. And the example that he gave um, in particular was um, like being able to cross the border and not be asked all kinds of invasive questions, you know, or being able to make a complaint somewhere uh, that that something had gone wrong, someone had done something um, that was a violation, and know that something would be done about it. Um, so I I sort of read that as a micro politics um, of 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 democracy and and of liberal democracy. Um, so uh, I like thinking about what they were doing in more mundane terms, I guess, because there's so much, and you, I'm sure you know this from all of your extensive reading about contemporary Russia and, and the, the commentariat <laughs> on contemporary Russia. Like, the term democracy is so freaking charged. Um, yeah, yeah, and empty. <laughs> and, 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 and it's used as a cudgel. Um, I think it's used to, um, you know, I, I just read Keith Gesson's um, op-ed the other day in the New York Times. So I think it's part of the discourse that, that casts Russia in very monolithic terms. And, and that's, what's, that's what's actually really interesting of what you're looking at, um, you know, the, this term micropolitics. Really what it is, it's, it's kind of an ethics of, of democratic behavior or democratic recognition of how you, how you approach fellow citizens or even approach hierarchies within the country like or you're configuring a new responsibility between um, the social responsibility of the citizen and the state and the relationship between the two um, and this is what's interesting too because you also suggest that this can also this also falls into for some people a, a basis on which to critique uh, the Putin system Exactly. Um, so the, the ethics, I, I really like how you, how you put that, the sort of ethics of, of responsibility and also an ethic, a social ethics, a way of, of relating to others. And um, one of the things that I think I, I saw, at least in this, there was a radio show um, called Vzroslim Avzroslich, or, uh, you know, for adults, about adults on Echa Moskvi. Um, hosted by this guy, Mikhail Lapkovsky, um, who's really a, you can probably still listen to these shows, they're amazing. Um, and what, what he was trying to do th in and through uh, his brand of, of psychology and psychotherapy was to expand um, the boundaries of intimacy, actually, I think, to, to kind of come towards, I guess you could say fold, you know, like the, the old story about um, Kuchonny uh, Razgavor kitchen talk, you know, in the Soviet period where your intimates are all in this little sweaty kitchen. 
and kind of fold that out into uh, a, a broader, more expansive form of stranger relationality. And he had this show about, um, you know, how, why is it that nobody takes care of the, the dvor, you know, of the building, you know, the courtyard, it's like filled with cigarettes and pee. And so, so for him, this was for me emblematic of, of that kind of new um, expansive form of, of ethical social responsibility. And where, where that came together, that was also the place where you would hear critiques of, of Putinism and the way in which um, money and corruption and bribery and selfishness uh, seem to be ascendant and, and pushing uh, precisely against uh, the, these forms of social being that the, the, the practitioners that I met were trying to promote. In, in a way, it's it's a and through and talk about these talk shows some more. In a way, it's trying to disseminate amongst the audience or try to come to some sort of consensus about the moral economy of daily life, right? So because of the the corruption and the growing sense of injustice, the the any the economic inequality. You know the 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 cleanliness or the the um, disgustingness of the dvor uh, speaks to this kind of speaks to a, a, a sense of you know how do we talk about this? Why isn't anyone taking care of it? Why isn't anyone responsible? It is to me speaking to a, trying to develop develop or articulate what the moral economy of this you know of the two thousands is. I think that's really well put. Um... The, another word or phrase that pops into mind that could accompany moral economy would be social fabric. Yeah. And, um, you know, this sort of back to the threshold idea and the, the, you know, the, the dissolution of a form of everyday life that took place, you know, whether you started in 91 or 80 or 98, I guess, doesn't matter so much as the fact that, um, you know, the coordinates of daily life, the moral coordinates uh, had been scrambled. And... Psychology and psychotherapy is one probably of many locations, the orthodoxy would probably be another obvious one, where you can see the, the struggle, the effort to, to remap that, to figure out what is, what is the basis of social connectivity? How, how are we responsible to one another? And, uh, and are we just a carbon copy of the capitalist West, or is there something you know, particular to who we as Russians are that... that that is different, and and this this of course speaks to the limits of forming this neoliberal subject because you know there is a, a transformation a monetarizing of relations in the sense of you know in the Soviet period you have things like blot you have a network of patron clients you have a network of family and friends where you help each other to fill the gaps of. Um, of the shortage of access or the inequalities um, at, amongst your peers or your own social environment. And these, there's a, a, a development of these relations being more monetized in the post-Soviet period, but they don't go away, of course. They still function. They may function somewhat differently, but they, they don't go away. So how do, in, what are the limits of this attempt to create this you know, neoliberal, self-reliant, entrepreneurial, uh, individualist, responsible for oneself um, effort in with psychotherapy. What are the limits of that? I think the limits are. Um, uh, I think I have a, an epigraph. Let's see if I can find it here. This little nugget from Jacques Ranciere. The first motto of any self-emancipation movement is always the struggle against selfishness. And, and I think selfishness or self-centeredness or, uh, you know, a heightened extreme form of, of individualism would, would um, be one way of describing the limit. That the idea that um, the, the fantasy or the dream of that somehow self-work, working on yourself, rabota nad saboy, would somehow scale up and out into broader social transformations. I'm not sure that that's going to work, <laughs> you know, 
it, are there a lot of dangers and and people you know they you become highly inwardly focused and and um and i think that this is an evidence certainly in in the us as well where where forms of self work become extremely um you know it's like self-rummaging samakopanya the the kind of soviet critique of of, of psychotherapy um it becomes like a it it it, it facilitates like further atomization of society alienation and kind of a fragmentation as well exactly and were you a fan of mad men did you watch the show yes uh -huh. okay right so do you remember the last scene he's he goes to he essentially goes to esalen i think it's supposed to be the esalen institute in big sur and he's participating in uh the what is the human potential the emergence of the human potential movement um so this sort of he's he's lost and and now he's sort of found in a way um and he finds himself on the bluff above the pacific ocean with these other uh, people seeking self-actualization and and at some point he opens his eyes as if he has an aha moment and the show ends with the um the advertisement i'd like to buy the world a coke right that's right yes so, <laughs> so so this kind of connection, you know, I think between um, self-actualization, commerce, uh, is is a is a very natural one, and I think that's a limit. So would you would you I mean going back to this idea of you know um, marketing democracy or democ democ democratic market? I can't remember now what marketing it is. Marketing democracy, I had it, but yeah, yeah. Marketing democracy. I mean, is this is this basically? Um, in in a way, I, I kind of I can't help but think of it as kind of a scam, and the sense of you're given or provided or encouraged to adopt various democratic forms of ethics, but you're not expected to, or even there is no desire to transform those those ethical practices into any kind of institutional power. It, you're, the limit of your democratic engagement is literally, I want to buy the world a Coke, <laughs> right? The, the, the expression of your political identity is through consumption uh, in a variety of forms. Um, and, and here, I think you, you can even link this up with a, with a global trend of neoliberalism, and that is the, disin the reduction of political practice to consumption. Uh, it's there. Uh, what what you describe, I mean, it's a, a grim, as you put it, uh, earlier horrifying um, kind of reality. Um, and I think that there is, um, I mean, actually, I think it's kind of obviously straightforwardly stated by some of our former leaders that, um, you know, democracy and markets should, should go hand in hand. And oh, creating markets was was thought to be also in the Russian case. Uh, a very obvious way to, you know, as they put it, put a spear through the heart of communism and, and you know, the proliferation of civil society and democracy and everything would just be hunky-dory. I think that um, there is that um, operative kind of political agenda, but I think that the reactions and maybe even the potentials that this um, psychology boom had or can have is also very context dependent. Um, it isn't just that um, that uh, this rather cynical model of marketing democracy is just unfolding as as if a blueprint in in Russia. Like people, like Sergei Ushakin writes about uh, a kind of very uh, an awareness that people he spoke to in Russia and had about the sort of bait and switch. Um, where, you know, okay, you're going to have markets and democracy and, and uh, elections and everyone will be prosperous. And uh, in the end, you know, the, the, the central terms of that promise were recoded. So privatizatia became privatizatia or gra gravitization and um, uh, the abbreviation for liberal values, la vie, became a slang for cash. So people, people know, um, people are aware of that. And, and Alexander in talking about the micropolitics of liberalism, we're also aware of it. So I like to think of 
what I encountered in more open-ended terms, you know, as a, as a kind of engagement with questions of well-being, what, you know, living for oneself and for others, helping others while making a living. Those are the kinds of questions I think people were struggling with there. And, and, to, and to me, that was a very familiar struggle, you know, I think. And finally, you write in your introduction that your book's title, Shock Therapy, um, is meant to be provocative. Um, it's also a good marketing title, too. By provocative, I'm assuming you meant intellectually provocative. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what is, your, what is your notion of shock therapy uh, help us explain this post-socialist experience? First of all, let me, let me start with, you use the word marketing, right? And I think that's a great place to start. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm shilling my book, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I mean, let's be honest here. Like, I'm not some kind of, uh, you know, political radical. And, and so why the notion that I think critique and social critique can lead us, lead analysts to a place in which they expect or anticipate or demand something from their interlocutors that um, maybe uh, is not, uh, it's not a standard that, that one applies to oneself. So maybe I need to become more radical. I don't know. But, but you know, the, the, way, the, the way in which, uh, you know, I tried to work with that um, is to, and, and with the title, I guess, to come back to your, the, the gist of the question. Um, was to in some way recode that phrase shock therapy itself. Um, in the case of, of Russian reforms and and this term is applied to um, to uh, structural adjustment policies that were applied all around the world in the 80s and 90s through the IMF and the World Bank and the so-called Washington Consensus, um, which which you know required in exchange for loans, certain kinds of, you know, privatization, liberalization of trade and, and so forth. It was, the idea was it was, it would shock the system. And then somehow, I, I guess, suppose something therapeutic would follow. I'm not, or, or the shock itself was the therapy. The shock was, I mean, it, it's borrowed. The, the idea is taken from Hayek, which is the shock to the system destabilizes the normal workings of institutions and politics that you can basically get away with something that you wouldn't otherwise been able to get away yeah. with. And crisis uh, capitalism is, yeah, is exactly. a, yeah, like Naomi Klein's kind of um, thing. Yeah, so, so um, Alina Lyedinova, uh, who's a, a Russian scholar, uh, said that she quotes somebody, I couldn't find the exact person who said it, but I, I love it's, it. It's it's Strobe Talbot, I think. Strobe Talbot, all, all shock. No, no. The, the phrase, the, Ru the, the Russian response was that it turned out to be all shock and no therapy. No, yeah, it's, oh, really? I think it's Strobe Talbot. That's yeah. fascinating. Okay. <laughs> Strobe Talbot. Who would have yeah. known that he was at the bottom of this? <laughs> um, so I don't want to say that the, the therapy I'm studying is the missing therapy. Uh, and actually, I think that maybe it's better to to think about shock and therapy as as sort of in this case as distinct processes, and that there there were economic and political shocks that unfolded in Russia that were very harsh and that were in, indeed neoliberal. But the therapeutic responses to those events were quite um, plural and and diverse and and rich. Um, you know, and I think that they, they speak less to a, a functional response to some sort of political economic policy and more um, they speak to how, you know, particular people living in a particular place in time um, underwent certain forms of self-experimentation, you know, to sort of figure out how to live well um, under, under radically new terms and conditions. So it's a repurposing, I guess you could say. That was Thomas Matza, an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Pittsburgh, where he specializes in medical and psychological anthropology, mental health, political economy, and global health. He's the author of Shock Therapy, Psychology, Precarity, and Well-Being in Post-Socialist Russia, published by Duke University Press. 
I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Give me, give me, shot, give me, give me, give me, shot, give me.